And you're listening to Danielle and Sharla's podcast, STFU. We are not done talking yet. Episode three. I'm fine. I had my tooth pulled yesterday, upper molar, tooth number two. And after six days of excruciating pain, now I feel awesome. So yeah, I'm doing great. Good. We're back in business. This is our podcast. It's called Shut the Fuck Up. We're not done talking yet. This is our third podcast. We just started. And we thought we'd give you a quick background for those of you who don't already know us. My name is Sharla. I live in Alamo, California. And Danielle and I have known each other 10 years. We just celebrated our 10th year friend anniversary in January. We went to India with my NIA group. Um, I think there were something like 18 Americans who came to India that year, and it was pretty cool. My work uh, basically has been NIA for 16 or 17 years. I'm a dance teacher, dance movement teacher. So I know a lot of people through that. And Charla and I go out for coffee most Thursdays after my class, and we can't even <laughs> stop talking. We drag each other like apart from after two and a half hours of talking at True Food Kitchen, and then we're not done. So we're like, wow, we should really record these fascinating <laughs> discussions that we're having because um, we're so charming and funny. Right? That's true. We decided we needed to share ourselves with the world. And we didn't really have a title for a while. We were brainstorming titles. And then we had a little incident. I had a little incident where my husband was interrupting me. And I finally told him to shut the fuck up. And I said, I'm not talking, done talking yet. And he was really annoyed with me, as he should be, and I apologized. But later, I told Danielle's story, and this became one of our possible titles. Um, yeah, because I think we both feel like we have lots to say, and also we're tired of men interrupting us and mansplaining and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of where that came from. Also, Danielle teaches Nia. Nia, we can, we're actually going to have the person who started Nia as one of our interviewers in a couple of weeks, um, Debbie Rosas, who helped create Nia, which is a fascinating mind, body, spirit, and emotion practice. I've been doing it for many years, and that's how we met, you and I, through Nia. Exactly. Okay, so I'm ready to introduce our very first guest. That's and right. Our very first guest is Jonelle Sarah, and she Hello. wrote a book called The Vines We Planted. How are you today, Jonelle? I'm great. It's a sunny day, so I'm good. Good. And I just want to give a little background here. Jonelle and I have known each other since we were 13 years old, and we are now 53. So if you can do that math, it's 40 years. (laughs) And the way that we met is on her 13th birthday, she had a, took us all to the movies to see Grease, and then we had a sleepover. And we've been friends ever since. We did know each other a little bit before that moment, but we weren't super tight in pre and what do you call it, junior high school. But then we became very good friends after that. And in fact, I followed her. She moved to California first and I followed. So here I am. So anyway, thank you for being on our show today, Joe. Now, and you um, published your book last spring, right? Yeah, Vines We Planted came out in May. And by the way, thanks for having me. And um Impressive that you remember the movie. Uh, The book was published in May uh, 2018, so we're coming up on a year. 
and the initial big push has calmed down, but so far it's doing well. Awesome. I went to two of your book readings, so I know you had a lot of book readings at stores and various places. I did. I went to New York and I had one in Sacramento, Sonoma. They were, they were, each one was very different, very different personalities. So my sister had one in Sacramento with like 50 people and most of them had read the book, which was very like unusual that mm -hmm. they had read it ahead of time because my sister is a, is a force. <laughs> so she got everyone in sales. <laughs> everyone had to buy the book everyone had to read the book and everyone had to come and ask questions and there were 50 people <laughs> that's fantastic she obviously she has another career ahead of her as a book publisher <laughs> exactly change jobs <laughs> so um we were just talking about your book and maybe you could answer some questions for us because um, the five points of view which i remember you saying in one of your talks was is unusual and that your publisher or an editor perhaps pushed back on you but we really like your five points of view which is your favorite character i can't pick favorites because i would oh. some characters feelings <laughs> but um yeah, I, I mean, my actual publisher in the end was really supportive of the, of the book as a whole. Um, but I think some of what took me a long time to get a publisher and, and where I ended up with a small press is that five is a lot. And people, especially in the pitch, they don't like hearing about the different perspectives. They, you know, it's very hard to pitch a complex book. Well, also, this, I think having multiple point of views where you are in different characters' heads in different chapters is viewed as kind of an old-fashioned approach, right? Because it's kind of like that's what maybe Jane Austen would have done or something. It's, I guess I would just say it's more common in books of an older era. And, but your book is so, it's seamlessly done. Um, as you yeah. from chapter to chapter, you're in different characters' heads, but you do not have a sense of joltiness. Um, it's really, really well done. Um, maybe we should, let's describe the characters, the main five characters, and then because those people who haven't read the book will have a better idea of, yeah. of what's going on. Okay, we have Uriel, and he's probably in some ways the protagonist, the main mm -hmm. character. Uh, and he works at his uncle's winery and takes care of the horses and helps make wine. And he is a bereft widow who lost his uh, wife a couple of years earlier. And he's young. He's not, he's not even 30. Right. Um, Amanda, his ex-lover, who's back in town to take, you know, to visit with her parents because her father's got illness going on. She's about the same age and she just got back from Peru and she's headstrong, redhead, She's adopted and she has a lot of questions. Her parents aren't crazy about questions. Um, so there's a little mystery going on with Amanda. She's an anthropology PhD student. Um, we have her parents, which are both significant characters that we have perspectives from both of them. Um, her mother, Elena, is, I think in some ways has the biggest arc in the course of the book. Um, starts off, I think, very detached from her feelings and very shut down. Mm -hmm. and has some really challenging circumstances in the course of the book and at least what i aimed to show was her returning to herself um her younger self her real self by the end of the book so she ended up growing into much more of a significant character than i had expected when i first wrote it and her husband um 
you know, he's also rather complex without giving away too much. Um, very, you know, he's the guy who goes to the city and makes the money and works really hard and is really driven, but he has a whole secret life going on, which slowly gets um, revealed. So they're both um, sort of intense and complicated characters. So you can see why Amanda feels a little bit oppressed when she's back in the house. And then our final perspective is Gloria, who is actually a link between the two families. So she is Uriel's cousin, and she is not, she's one of the few people in the book that is a, a real immigrant, came as a child, but does not have documentation. And she works as a house cleaner, and she cleans the Scanlon's house. So she cleans Amanda's parents' house. So she's able to give us quite a window into the life of the Scanlon's, and at the same time, um, a nice perspective on Uriel's rather dysfunctional but loving family. Right. There you go. Okay. Well, and Excellent. we and we loved. Uh, I loved the development, as you just said, of, of Elena, Elena, in her how she comes to be much more three dimensional and just you know changes delightfully. And what we really really liked is how you cover such different aspects of the wine country and what that is. So the wine country in California has all sorts of fancy people with huge, you know, properties and their horses and everything. And then there's the folks who work for them and that is their dichotomy and the, um, the Gloria without her papers and how is she staying there and how the fear she has every day, right? Fear every yeah. day of like, who's going to find her and she needed to connect with her ex to get, some papers that she right and it was and needed a bunch of money to pay an attorney so i thought that was really well done yeah i like that yeah. this book was not just about fancy rich white people who do yoga in sonoma and drink wine <laughs> right i mean those are maybe the people that i probably would be more likely to know but um i think you yeah you did a great job of giving the whole picture of what the Sonoma life is like in the Sonoma economy, um, where you've got people doing, like basically living agricultural lives that are very tenuous, right next to people who've got incredible wealth. Um, they Both groups have problems, but their problems are so different. You know, mm -hmm. one is like living from paycheck to paycheck, and are they gonna get deported? And the other's got more like, you know, issues that relate maybe more to personal um, issues. They're not economically threatened in any way. Right. But I, I thought that was really, really well done. And that is maybe one of the things that makes the book a really great description of the place. It's a very place-driven book. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed that there are a lot of there's a lot of detail in there. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about any kind of research you did. Um, obviously, you've lived there, but mm -hmm. um, did you do other research? I did. I, um, I've lived there at least part-time and then more and more towards full-time for about six, seven years. So it was supposed to be basically a love letter to Sonoma because mm -hmm. um, I do love it so much. But one of the early... Uh, readers and editors gave me the feedback that I needed to include a lot of little details about Sonoma to give it real a real sense of place and also to capture the difference of somebody who's driven through town a few times versus the experience of really living there. Um, so I really made a point of including 
including a lot of details as I experienced them. And then I did do research. Um, there are some great books on the history of Sonoma. So I read those and tried to weave in the history. But that's, you know, you could write a really large book on that. Right. Um, but I tried, you know, I went and hung out with horses a little bit. I did research in the wineries. I had to drink a lot of different wine. To do uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the important thing. You have to do what you have to do. That's great. I'm still researching every day. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so now, did you meet some people who work with horses to have that language about how Uriel talked about them? Um, I have friends in, in the wine area who do it. I mean, the place that I live is technically zoned for horses. And so I don't have a horse, but a lot of our neighbors do. So first of all, every time I took a walk, between chapters and just had to go for a walk and process, I would pass probably a dozen horses because they're all around my neighborhood. And they listen to me, the horses. I can talk to them about my characters and process my book. <laughs> unlike, unlike my humans who got tired of hearing about the same book, the horses were very patient. So we had, you know, a real connection going. Um, yes, I have friends who own horses and friends who take care of horses. I. One of them did read it and tell me a few mistakes I'd made, but I didn't do, I really wanted to like have a, a horse person who was in there with me every chapter letting me know the language and they're all too busy. I mean, taking care of a horse when you have a normal life, I mean, these people have no time. They just basically go to work and take care of their horse. They're lucky if they, they don't have a social life because they have horses. Um, and it's just very funny because they're all the same and they're all obsessed with it and they're all, they all know each other, but they don't really hang out because we're with the horses. So yeah. It's a subset. It's a real subset, and there's a lot of them in Sonoma. And it actually crosses the again, crosses the different. Yeah, you have your wealthy horse owners, but you have a lot of people who are not wealthy. They're just committed to having a horse, and that's part of why they live there. And it really was a huge thing in the fires because it was all about the people and the houses, but getting the horses out in Sonoma was a big deal. We have we have friends who lost their house but got their horses, and that was very much mm -hmm. their priority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then fires happen. The biggest, biggest fire happens or like a half a year before your book came out, right? Correct. 2017, Correct. where we are fire ravaged. Um, you know, Janelle, when you were talking about talking to the horses and getting free equine counseling, uh, <laughs> it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you. I know that your own background is that you are a therapist. Yes. And so I was just curious as to um, how you thought that your background as a therapist influenced the way that you wrote this book. Um, I think that it's just very much integrated into how I view the world at this point. Um, people ask me that a lot. Like, did you think about these different problems psychologically because you are a therapist? Probably, right? Just the same way if you're an accountant, you're going to think about and you're writing a book that has people with money problems you're going to be thinking about where they should be investing right so it's very integrated in my brain mm -hmm. um i had one person say like would you would you treat elena that way is that what you would recommend as a therapist and i was like shocked i said no not necessarily like i'm not handing out this is not a how-to book right <laughs> <laughs> this is not supposed to be advice and i because she was like i don't know if that would work i'm like please don't take my advice out of a novel um, <laughs> if you're the, you know, if you're feeling that depressed, can you please call someone? Um, so mm -hmm. 
I think it comes through a lot in my in my ability to drop into different characters because to be a good therapist or coach, which I do much more coaching at this point, you have to be able to drop into people's experience pretty quickly. You can't take weeks to get to know people. You got to just be able to connect, drop in and feel what they're feeling in order to help. And so that is why I think a lot of therapists are also writers because it's it's very similar skill set. You're observing the world through someone else's experience. And as a writer, you write it down. I've never thought of that. You know, it makes a lot of sense, especially when we were talking earlier about how you had five characters' points of view. Maybe the fact that it was so seamless to me as a reader is that each time you dropped into somebody else's head, you did such a good job um, that it, it seemed very effortless and it didn't seem odd. I mean, I think a lot of times if you have to have juggle too many characters and you're in their head with their point of view, um, sometimes it seems stilted, right? Or you can just tell that the author is really struggling to adopt a point of view of somebody who's different from them. Um, you know, like when women try to do men's point of view, or maybe more likely when men do women's point of view. But um, yeah, so I think that you did a great job, uh -huh. but maybe that's where it came from. I think so, and I also think, well, thank you for that compliment. I, I think one of the reasons this book works from different perspectives is there is probably for every chapter you have of um, Elena or Jim, any of them, there are two or three chapters written that aren't in the book. I wrote so much about these people and did so much backstory and, mm -hmm. and I had to cut a lot to get it to fit into a book, but that backstory layers in. And yes. um, I learned that a little bit from, I, I do a little bit of playwriting and I went to a great workshop that just, wouldn't let us talk about the play till we could answer things like, what does the character eat for breakfast on Tuesdays? Ah. When they're standing in the rain, what do they say? Do they tend to carry an umbrella? I mean, we had to be able to answer questions about these characters that had nothing to do with the play. Pages. And if you didn't know it, you made it up. And his mm -hmm. point was, by the time you finish all that, you throw them in a room together and you're going to have a play. And it's very similar for me as character-driven writing. You have to know your characters inside and out, and then the circumstances kind of come from them. Yes, yes. Well, the plot is kind of character-driven, if you will. Yeah. Yes, and that's that's my the kind of book I like to read. So that's the kind of book I wanted to write. Um, well, that makes me wonder: Did you have the plot in mind when you sat down to write the book, or did it evolve from what from the beginning to the end? Uh, it evolved quite a bit. The book was a series of short stories, and that was because I was tired of, frustrated of writing novels that weren't getting picked up, and writing novels I wasn't in love with, actually. I'd write my own novel and still not love it. I had written several before. So I decided to write short stories, and and I did that, and I got all these stories together, and people pointed out to me that it was actually a novel, since the same characters were in everybody's story. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and things changed and it was a character arc and I was so resistant to rewriting it into the novel, but eventually I did. And so, yeah, at that point I had to smooth some plot points and add some and take some away, but they each had their own story first. And I think that was important. Yes. Well, yeah. I was wondering about that because when you have five main characters and you want each of them to have their own narrative arc, that that's very that sounds very tricky to me yeah um so i'm really <laughs> impressed that you could pull that off 
it was tricky. My, my next book that I'm working on or editing at this point is three perspectives. So I gave myself a little break. And <laughs> we'll see if I can hold to that. I'm trying to hold to three. I'm already tempted by a fourth. I, I find it more fun to be able to switch into different people's brains and different people's experiences. But of course, when you do that, there's so much work to be done. I have to create another kitchen. I have to decide what their front door looks like. I have to right. all those details that come through when you're at that perspective. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of work, but I actually enjoy trying to look at the same problem from different perspectives. Well, it's interesting because they all have their own personalities and you had to create them their own what's in their head, but they are linked by their plate, by the place. Yes. You know, there's this common Sonoma place that holds them all together. Right. Of the place through these different people. There's that commonality that I think sort of anchors and grounds the whole stories, all the stories. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have read any of Louise Erdrich. Um, I have. Writer. Yeah, so she she's kind of a model for me. I mm -hmm. hope, I know I'll never be able to write like her. <laughs> she's incredible, but her the way she drops, she put different books in the same place, and the mm -hmm. characters sometimes come into each other's books, and yet what grounds them all is this place. And in similarly with complex cultural issues, it's not mm -hmm. just native. You know, it's not like she's just writing about indigenous experience. She's also writing about all these other experiences. So she's sort of a role model, I guess, would be a way to put it. I think that she pulls it off well. There's a few other writers who have done it well. If you can make the place the central character, then, then your reader is grounded while you do all kinds of fun stuff. Exactly. I think that's a great way to put it. You've just created this. You created a whole world, and then you've got characters walking around in that world. <laughs> exactly. Having experiences. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the whole process of getting from short story to novel and then novel to publication. Um, so the short, the, the short stories to novel I did based on editor feedback um, and agents. I went to something called the Community of Writers at Squaw Valley, which is a summer uh, workshop for writers. It's a week long. It's a little bit hard to get in. So mm -hmm. I second or third year that I applied I got in and um they just you know it's a it's basically a lot of fun so it's a week up in Squaw Valley and Annie Lamott tends to be there and Amy Tan and all kinds of wonderful people but you also get feedback from agents and writers that have been out around a long time and so that's you know they told me you need to do a b and c <laughs> you know you need to get this into a novel and then you need to I had like 11 perspectives because I had a series of short stories so they told mm -hmm. me I had to get down to like four which I didn't do I did five so that was the beginning of me rewriting everything and then eventually you know the publishing path is is brutal um and so for anyone out there who's thinking of publishing I, you know we're at a funny point where there's a small number of really big publishers and they already know what they want usually before they've ever heard your pitch. They've already decided what's coming out next year and then mm -hmm. they'll tell the writers what they want. Um, and then there's some small presses like this one and then there's self-publishing, which is also very legitimate at this point. I, I don't even know for sure what I wanna do with my next book. Mm -hmm. um, so there's many pathways. What's gone is the pathway, the clear, this is what yeah. you do to get published. That's gone. 
So now there's many and they're all legitimate. And it, a lot of it has to do with, you know, what you want most for your book and whether you want to write something that's going to sell enough for the big guys to want it or whether you just want to write your book and then decide where it goes. Well, you know, I was thinking, I have a lot of friends who publish books over the last few decades and things have changed so much. They used to have book publicists and they would go on book tours that were organized by the book publicists. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody has to do their own publicity. Mm -hmm. And so if you yeah. think about, you know, does a traditional publisher, they have distribution channels that they can get into bookstores, but the author has to do so much in terms of publicity, promoting the book, that um, I think, yeah, the difference between self-publishing and traditional publishing is really not that huge anymore. It, you know, I, I, obviously there's always going to be sort of the blockbuster books that make a lot of money and are going to get reviewed widely, but they're just a handful of those. Yeah. So now what are, what are you thinking about doing with your next book based on what happened with this book and you having a small publisher? Um, I'd say I'm on the fence. Um, the beauty of a big publisher is they take on obviously all the costs, um, but they also, the, the distribution channels is really the main thing. Um, and should a big publisher want to snatch up my second book? It'd be hard to say no, because it's nice to picture it sitting in a bookstore in Ohio. Right. Or somewhere, you know, that I'm not going to put it right. But financially I don't know that you're any better off like it's just it's such a crapshoot you make so little either way you have to have another way you make money you just really do <laughs> yeah right yeah. no that's so so disturbing that we can't get paid for art like you're an artist and and you did something that took years and years to do and that's not exactly viable because we live no, in the most I, expensive place ever right Right. I mean, I think there's lots of, you know, when I talk to younger writers and artists or I'm mentoring people, there are a lot of ways to make money with your artistic talents at this point, especially in the Bay Area. So if I just wanted to make money from writing while I wrote this book, you know, I could be writing for any of these tech companies. I could write for their website and get paid very well <laughs> to write about, you know, why it's a better cup of coffee all kinds of things we have you can write for gaming industry you can write for television netflix is i mean it's the best time ever to break into writing for television there has never been so much content ever right mm -hmm. so there's opportunities but if you just want to write fiction and write your fiction novel i think you're going to end up really resentful if you don't have another source of income mm, good point so it worked well for me to have another source of income and not ride on this I, and I'm sorry when I meet writers who are so bitter about it because I, you can be bitter or not. I don't think the situation is going to change. I don't think we're going to suddenly start paying fiction writers really well. So it's a, tr it's a question of how much you want to carry that around. Yeah, that's a good point. I right. mean, it's kind of like, I feel like, you know, getting published is maybe like the icing on the cake, but you had, you have to really enjoy the baking. <laughs> right. I mean, it, and it's a totally separate activity in yeah. a way. It's a whole lot, as you say, it's a total crapshoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you have, to feel, you have to feel really good about the product. And I think when mm -hmm. we start thinking about what would the big publishers pick up and what might get sold, I mean, it's fine if that's your motive. But I wasn't going to end up with a book that way that I was so like clearly proud of. Yes. And that's, to me, in the end, when I looked and 
thought about it and I have a lot of friends who write and publish. I couldn't stand the idea of a book being out there I didn't love. It just made me so uncomfortable. It doesn't go away, right? Yes. It's different than being an actor who you might get into three horrible movies and three great ones and nobody, like, you know, you just jump yeah. in and out, right? But this is something, this is your own piece that you created. So the idea that you would write, like, like for me, and this isn't a judgment, but I wasn't able to be like, yeah, let me do the vampire novellas mm -hmm. because they're selling. Like it's, you know, and some people write incredible vampire novellas. <laughs> right. Right. And that's fine. But I wasn't really, I can't write well in that way. I have to write from my heart. And right now that doesn't happen to be a huge, big seller. But it's also been really lovely, the amount of validation that's come through. And the, the book, like today, when I do this book club in Florida, there's book clubs in many states have done this book. And that's, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, people are sharing it. People are sharing it on social media. You had a bunch of sales on Amazon and people see that. We all review, right? And then people <laughs> see the reviews. You have your five stars and... Yeah, that's important. So it's a new world. That's almost more satisfying because you know that people who are in book clubs are serious readers. I mean, that they love books. Right. And they could pick any book for their book club, but they, right. they picked yours. So, I mean, that's kind of exciting. Maybe there's two people here and 10 people there, but it's kind of quality over quantity in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Yeah, and it's funny to have readers in, like, one of the women who just wrote to me and said, I was so excited you mentioned my city in the book. Oh. <laughs> I live in San Salvador. So, first of all, it took me a minute. I was like, what, is there San Salvador in the book? And then I remembered that, like, for one minute, Amanda stops there on the way home from Peru and, like, eats yucky sausages or something. It's not, like, the most flattering San Salvador moment. But there <laughs> <laughs> stops there on the way home and this writer this reader wrote to me saying you know my friends and I in San Salvador are reading your book and we're so excited we're in, that our city was in the book and I just like the idea that there was a group of them reading it in San Salvador and I've had those experiences like people saying can you get me a hard copy in Russia I'm like I, I wouldn't know how to do that you're gonna have to do that through Amazon was it but, translated into Spanish is that why the people there are they reading it in English they're reading it in English. I'm still, um, you know, if it's going to be translated in Spanish, it'll be on my dime. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, I will own it. So if I was to translate it, all those sales are 100% mine. Ah. Um, mm -hmm. But it's an investment in the first place. So I think I'll do it. I was just talking to a translator this week. I'm just trying to gauge whether people would really read it or how do I even market in Spanish in these other countries. So it's, a, it's kind of a big... <laughs> I don't know, but the audio book is similar. Like I made the choice to go ahead and push into audio and I made the investment and I own the audio book. Did you do the, um, did you read your own book for the audio? Or did you have a, an yeah. actor, actress? I have an actress, actor, mm -hmm. actor. I used a company and they hire the actors and they produce and they do all of that. And I'm getting good feedback from various people who listen to audiobooks. I haven't listened to it too much because I had to listen to it a lot while they were editing. And now, um, I mean, you know, like you don't, hearing your own words, you, you start going like, oh, I should have said this instead. You know, I just. <laughs> <laughs> well, once the book is done, it has a life of its own. Yes, yes. And you have to let it go and write the next one. Um, and I've been listening to an audiobook now that I'll say you guys should cover at some point, which is, it's always been this way. Have either of you read that? No. No. It's always been this way. 
stunning, beautiful audio book. And it's about raise, a big family of five and then raising their youngest who is probably transgender um, with four big brothers. And it's just beautifully done. So as a writer, it's just so great when you find a book that feeds you. Mm -hmm. and, um, having audio means that after I'm tired of looking at the screen for eight hours, I can just put on the audio book and listen. It's quite good. It's a good one for you guys to like read and dissect because it's very complex. Who is the author? Do you recall? I know. I can, okay, I can be reading a book and not have any idea the name of the author. <laughs> I do have tonight. an idea. Let's keep talking. It'll That's okay. This was not a quiz. <laughs> we will check out. It's always good. Very good. Yeah. Um, is there, I'm trying to ask other questions. I'm thinking about you and your social media platforms and that kind of stuff. Has that helped you in your like getting Instagram followers and Twitter? You know, it's, it's hard to know. I certainly, um, I will say that Instagram, I have had very, very, uh, supportive. Like a lot of my reviews are from people that read the book because they saw it on Instagram. And then they read it and they do these reviews. Some of them, um, some of them do it on Amazon. Some of them do it just as an, as a book. What do they call them? Bookstagrams. So they review on Instagram, oh. some, you know, and so like one person did that and, you know, she has 10,000 followers. So having her talk about my book and put it up for a couple of days with 10,000 followers is great. And my other friend, Jen Pasteloff, who you follow a little bit, her, memoir is coming out in the next month or two april april i think um she read my book and she posted about it and she has i want to say forty thousand followers so when people do that that's when you understand the meaning of influencer yes um, and you can actually see in my sales little bumps when people like that review my book i'm sure it'd be much better if the new york times reviewed my book <laughs> But yeah, that's a big like, help. It's a big help. That's why that's why you have all those things. And that's why all the authors are friends. So Jen Pastelov is like tight with Cheryl Strait and they're tight with Lydia Yuknovich. And then they all like say nice things and everyone buys everyone's books because they say nice things. And it's very, it yeah. must be, yeah, good. must be nice to be on the uh, downhill of that. <laughs> exactly. And um, the little bit I know about Cheryl through Jen and, and Cheryl actually has been great about like, she'll retweet my stuff and pick up my stuff. She seems to be, lovely um jen is wonderful and then there's you know yeah it is and, and what's so funny is there's like there's the old boys club and then there's sort of like the, the, women the new girls club, club. yeah <laughs> yeah so you know and there's issues with because there's glennon doyle who's a huge deal and yes. big, she's big, the biggest biggest deal yeah i remember reading her when she was still just blogging before she got yes mm -hmm. yes but you know there's been probably valid concerning criticism about this being a white girl club and i think mm -hmm. it's you know it's certainly that's an interesting thing when you follow the memoirs that are big and they all do like each other and they promote each other there's a question elizabeth gilbert is another one you know there's a question of where are the women of color in this world and why are we reading book after book great books by white women well first we read um maya angelou and we read uh tony morrison so mm -hmm. those are those are some forerunners that are people of color women of color but you're right there aren't enough and um we had a woman of color at uh, esalen last year we go to esalen writers camp charlotte with cheryl, and i with cheryl strade pam houston uh, you were at that 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Cheryl, uh, sorry, Charla's been twice and I went once and we're going again in May. You should come. It's pretty fun. Um, and uh, there was one teach, one of the faculty members was a woman of color and I'm totally spacing on her name right now. Faith, it wasn't Faith Adele. I think she Goodness was. Goodness gracious, that's so lame of me. Anyway. There was a, um, a writer named Faith Adele, A-D-A. I think that was the year I went without you. She wrote a great memoir called Finding Faith. It is really fascinating. It is, she's a black woman who became a Buddhist monk in Asia, and she has some kind of Icelandic background. Because that's she, normal. She is hilarious. She lives. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's Roxane Gay. She's writing. She's got a bunch of books now. Yeah. The, she, she's selling extremely well. But I think yeah. it is really well taken. Um, yes. Well, and especially in that one circle of women that tends to promote each other. And that, mm-hmm. and they've been just, you know, so anyway, one woman went to a women's retreat with Cheryl Strait, Elizabeth Gilbert. Maybe it was just them two. And she wrote this wonderful expose about realizing that she was one of two black women. And there mm-hmm. were like, mm, I want to say 500 people. It was yes. one of their really big events. Yeah, they had the big event in L.A., that a bunch and so of you wrote this me. really great expose, and I'll send it to you. You could link it. You could link it to the, your show. I, and she does a great job because in the end, she's glad she went. She actually had a super positive experience despite it. Yes. And yet she needed to say, "What the hell? <laughs> like, what is going on?" Mm-hmm. And I think we we just really need to look at not just reading some, you know, some diverse uh, writers, which is awesome, but like, what is not happening in the pipeline? What's where is the lack of support? to get women to tell their stories and some of it is just privilege and some of it is like it's awesome to see women finally breaking out and telling their stories but there's no doubt that white women are feeling more comfortable announcing their story right so what can we do to create environments to make it very clear that we want to hear stories like very diverse stories yes Um, and so you know i i think there's a lot they're coming out they're coming slowly the the main publishers are finally caving because they just basically got shamed into diversifying mm-hmm. um, and doing what they call like diverse spines, you know, different diverse books. And then they have something called Own Voices. So my book is a multicultural fiction. It got an award for, for multicultural fiction and it got picked for a Latino book club. But it's not what we call Own Voices. Yes. And so that's, you know, it's nice. We have an easy phrase and I put it in every pitch I write. This is not an own voices book Mm -hmm. because you can't tell from my name, right? So my name is, has Latin, Spanish roots. So I don't want them, you know, I'm not trying to take that space basically. Yes. So, you know, I really appreciate that there are agents fighting really hard for own voices books. And I think we're getting there. But when I look at the experiences I had that made the biggest difference to me, they were experiences of privilege. I had to be able to pay to go to these full week workshops. I had well, to yes, have- yes. That's what yeah. I was just thinking. It's sort of a, it's a wealth issue. Um, and I mean, it's also, it's like an issue of who are the readers and what do readers want to read? You know, if you have a bunch of, of women who are white, who are also wealthy, they have plenty of time and money and they want to read about things women who are like themselves. Mm. Maybe they're self-selecting, right? I mean, they would rather read about Elizabeth Gilbert than, I don't know. 
Roxanne Gay, maybe. I don't know. I'm just throwing that I out I want there. to read all of them. And I really, really liked, since Janelle brought it up, the um, uh, Louise Erdrich about her stories mm-hmm. about North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota. I've been devouring those books since I was like 26 years old. I, I don't, I have nothing to do with that. What, what about my life knows anything about American native, anything. I love them. I feel like I am. I feel like I know people. Right. And I think it's interesting that you brought that up because for me, I'm quite the opposite. I, I really like reading about any other culture, honestly, any other country. I love reading books that are not in our country. So, um, you know, it was funny because I met someone recently from Nigeria and I almost wanted to be like, oh, I know about Nigeria. And then I was like, that'd be so tactless. But I have been reading books in Nigeria because I fell in love with uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I don't know if you guys have read any of her work. Yeah, I've seen the name and you pronounced okay. it perfectly. So you guys should definitely do her books on that. Americana was probably her biggest seller, but I mm-hmm. think Happy Yellow Sun is um, actually my favorite book. So. You know, I, I read all of her work. And in fact, you guys have probably seen her little booklet. I think it's like why everyone should be a feminist or something like that. So oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So she's she's incredible. And you guys should watch her. her, her. So she does a thing about why there can't only be one story. It's a TED Talk. Yes. That is awesome. Um, and then I started reading other Nigerian writers. And so recently I was listening to a criticism of uh, white women on a podcast who couldn't couldn't keep the different countries straight in Africa, mm-hmm. and they kept like mixing up where this writer was from, and the two countries that are mixing up, I want to say like Chad and uh, you know Liberia or something. You know they weren't there was nothing similar. They weren't <laughs> there was just Americans not able to keep the countries straight in Africa, and so they kept referring to him instead as African. Because they were like, lost. oh, that's the biggest faux pas. <laughs> Africans are like, well, do not just call me Africa. I am from such and such a country. Right. That's I mean, it's crazy. People are in Asia, you know, Chinese <laughs> people and Japanese people and Koreans and Taiwanese and Hong Kong people. Yeah, they're not all the same. And right. they really resent being, oh, you're, it's Asian food or you're from Asia. Right. Yeah, Asia is a big place, just like Africa. Right. So what I did is I went online and I started taking geography quiz of Africa. <laughs> would have done much better since you're always so good at geography compared to me. I'm terrible at it. But I took these quizzes all night till I got a C plus. I was like, I can't go to bed with less than a C plus in African geography. Then come on over to trivia. We need you. <laughs> a trivia night. I got to C plus, but I and then I just decided I'm just going to try to read a book from every country in Africa at least oh, one. Oh, cool! That is a great idea. Yeah, so I'm starting to plan for a book club. Mm. Yep. Yeah. National book club. Exactly. So you know, to me, it's like on us to stop thinking and being like all about the states. It's really on us, right? And to start reading things in translation. Like, it's so funny if you try to find out the last thing you read in translation. It's almost nothing. We, if we read books from other countries, they almost always were written in English anyway. Mm, I was a Russian major. I read yeah. books that were Russian but translated to English. So, what's so there you go. You can put that on the list. <laughs> I put that on a list of, like, something that's really important not but it is you know because you probably had a different view into russia by reading things that were initially in russian and i think that is very different than reading from somebody who spoke english and visited russia right so 
Yeah. In order to really read from the country, we probably have to read things that were translated. But the yeah. publishers don't promote them. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. It's not practical, except for like if you're Paul Coelho and you're published in 39 languages. <laughs> right. One of those things like a, in pop psychology, something, something. Right. Is that how you say his name? I've never pronounced it out loud. I'm glad I to have always been afraid to say it out loud, Danielle. God bless you. You are taking yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, my Portuguese is outstanding. No, I'm kidding. It's not, but I think it's Paul <laughs> Coelho. Okay. But I'll ask my, my or it's probably like Coelho or something. I'll ask Bob. Well, if I could say Chimamanda, Chimamanda Ngoziadichi, then that's, you know. Chimamanda Ngoziadichi. <laughs> I was so impressed. Yeah. I still am. But speaking of writers, I mean, writers in translation, what's interesting to me is uh, who comes up is Isabella Allende. I think she's yes. in like 38 languages or something crazy. Mm -hmm. That is so true. She is a prolific writer. She writes in she writes in English now, right? Sometimes or she writes always in Spanish. Is there I used to know the answer to that. I used to know the answer to that. I um it's been a few years, you know, I, I Danielle knows I actually wrote a lot of this book at Isabel's house because her husband had a, a writing group and he would have us over every week. Yeah. And, oh, you're kidding. That is so cool. It was very cool. So once in a while I get to chat with her and um, she sent me a nice little note when the book came out. She's lovely, but I don't remember. I think she initially always wrote in Spanish and now maybe writes in English first, but I'm not a hundred percent, but I could ask her. Right. <laughs> For instance, Nabokov wrote, is a Russian man. He wrote all his books in English. Yes. Yeah. So that's different. And he had it was about America, right? Like, what's her face? Lolita. Um, Lolita as it takes place in the United States. Of course, he was such a polyglot to start with, right? I mean, yeah. he was a very cosmopolitan person. I think he spoke French as well. Um, people of his time and place and wealth, I think, were very European focused. Yeah. Oriented. Yeah. I'm really into the word polyglot. Polyglot. You so are you. Danielle's a bit of a polyglot. I am, yes. a, I am a bit of a polyglot. My other languages are so rusty. I do speak, I would say I speak English and German and Spanish pretty well. My French is lame. My Russian is lame. And my Chinese is really bad. But, you know, <laughs> I can say a few things. No, it's not. I can say, you're Chinese. I can say, Nichulama, which means, have you eaten today? Which is also says, hello, how are you? <laughs> Yeah, that's what that means. But yeah, no, and I'd like to go back. That's what I want. I want to go back to China. I know I can learn some more Mandarin. That's my goal in life. She's homesick for China. Homesick well, for Shanghai. If you come with me, we can just do podcasts from over there. <laughs> that would be you super know, fun. I like that idea. When Danielle lived in Shanghai, she was constantly taking pictures of people sleeping publicly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which they love to do. And she was suffering a little insomnia. So I told her she needed to make a book called Sleepless in Shanghai. Uh -huh. It would be like her memoir of her time there, illustrated with pictures of people sleeping on the street, you know, in their chairs. At, at Ikea. A, at Ikea, of course. <laughs> I, have, I have napped at Ikea. Sometimes it, you, you just need to lay down at Ikea. <laughs> will, will one of you come with me? I want to do, since I've taken pictures of all the Chinese people I can find sleeping at Ikea, I want to do ones of me. So I want to sleep on the sofas and the beds in, in every section and then have someone take a picture of me. That's, 
We'll take a field okay. trip to Emeryville IKEA, and then they will sponsor our podcast. Oh, That's such a good idea. We're, we're, we'll do anything. We'll try to find sponsors for our podcast. <laughs> yes, our brand is very, very fluid. We will attach ourselves to any brands we will attach themselves to. Yes. So, I, like, go ahead. What were you saying? I was about to say a politically incorrect thing. Anyway. <laughs> okay, I think I think we should wrap up our podcast yes. for today. We've been going for wow, forty five minutes or something. So, Jonelle, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. You're the Jonelle Sarah, and her book is called The Vines We Planted, and we're going to put it in the little notes of today's um, episode so people can find it. We're also going to make a Facebook page for our um, podcast. podcast, and then people can go to that and find out who we talked to today. Okay, well, I deal my spiel, which is you can get my book on Amazon. You can get it from my publisher, which is W-I-D-O Widow. You can get uh, audiobook on Audible. And mm -hmm. if you like it, please review it. You have no idea what that does for a writer. So I'm at, I think I'm close to 70. And apparently when you get to 100, you get a whole big different boost in the algorithm. On so Amazon? On Amazon. On so Amazon. Every review is priceless, and we have to tell all the readers that, because I don't think the average reader realizes, mm -hmm. I didn't realize before, that they have so much influence over the writers um, getting their book seen, because mm -hmm. Amazon won't throw it up there before 100 reviews, and then they start throwing it in front of people. Good so to know. Weird. So we're going to tell everybody that, um, again, in the notes of our podcast and on the Facebook page that we haven't made yet. And if you contact Jonelle, we'll put up your website. She would be. She will do a call in to your book club. Book club. If you buy the books, and I, I usually call in between the second and third glass of wine with groups of women. I have found I, I have to get in before that third glass. It's really, it gets sloppy. It's. <laughs> you know, I used to be a member of a book club with two people, me and my friend Lena, because um, I am a bad book club member. I basically want a little Hitler book club, which is means I pick the books. <laughs> So my friend Lena agreed to do one. She moved to Houston, but we used to drink wine and talk about the book. Yeah. And yeah. that I picked. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, it lasted. I have called into book clubs where it was too late. And they're all like, wait, what did we want to ask her? <laughs> so I've learned to call in early. I, have, I went to a book club in New Jersey that is friends of mine. And I have heard about the book club for 10, no, 15 years. For 15 years, I have heard about this book club from my friends that are in it. And it was so weird to actually go. And I was, you know, and on the way there, they told me that they'd only had one writer before and they, they like didn't like the book. And some of the, <laughs> some of the people have been very clear about that and open about it. Well, so I got more and more anxious as we're driving. I'm like, guys you didn't tell me that and they said well we're pretty sure they liked yours I'm like oh my god you know it's so jersey that like you might just walk in a book club and get like you know they're yeah, all food. very nice they're all very nice it's the only book club i've ever heard of that had the police called because they were too loud <laughs> <laughs> you know who this is dan so they were loud that the police came and one of my friend's husbands was like, I'm just so proud. I'm so proud that my wife's book club <laughs> is in the backyard so loud that the cops had to come. And like, meanwhile, they've raised teenage boys. The police have never had to come, right? 
Right. Book club. I aspire to have a book club that the police gets called to, <laughs> to break it up. I aspire. It is an aspiration for I, all yeah. obviously. I'm working on it. Donnell, <laughs> 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 thank you so much Janelle, for talking to us you. today. It was so it was fun. Very to good to see you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. We owe you lunch. We owe you lunch, love. That was awesome. Bye. Really I don't know how to hang up. You're gonna. I will. To we'll hang you up. Ciao. <laughs>